Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Thursday, October 14th, 2021. I am John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. I encourage you to go to commentary.org to sample uh, the remarkable uh, articles in our November issue, Woke the Threat special issue, uh, seven or eight articles devoted to wokeness and the unique danger it presents to the American experiment, to our healthcare, to the English language, uh, and to the Jewish people. Um, so uh, commentary.org, we give you a few free reads and we ask you to subscribe if you agree with the sorts of things that we are publishing here. I really do encourage you to subscribe now if, you're a, if you've been a, a longtime podcast listener. It's how we keep the lights on is having you uh, pony up <clears throat> to help pay us, to help defray the costs of uh, running of running our, our nonprofit institution here. And I would be very grateful, and you will profit from the knowledge that you glean from the material that we present you at www.commentary.org, where you will find, among many other people, Associate Editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Yes, I went in a different order. <laughs> Keep you on your toes. You never know where I'm coming. Now, am I going to mention Christine or Abe? Who who can tell? Who can say? I don't know what to do. Senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. There. Got it. And executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. I knew that one was coming. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, um, last night Donald Trump went uh, issued a statement in which he basically said nobody should vote uh, Republican until he is reinstalled as president. As far as I can tell, which I think um, you know suggests uh, that he views the fact that the Senate is in Democratic hands uh, as a result of his behavior in uh, November and December uh, depressing the Republican vote in Georgia uh, as a political triumph for him. And um, we are now, I think, we are now on the verge of uh, the fact that he is actually wishing doom and death upon the party of which he is the nominal leader um, as with many aspects of Donald Trump's political existence, we are doing something entirely new. Something entirely new has happened in the annals of American political history just in the last uh, 18 hours. Noah Rothman, please expound on your views of this remarkable development. Sure. So the president, former president put out a statement last night which is all of two sentences, but the first is all that matters. Quote, if we don't solve the presidential election fraud, all caps, of 2020, uh, parenthetical, which we have thoroughly and conclusively determined, end parenthetical, Republicans will not be voting in 2022 or 2024. Now, it's, it's a pretty vague threat, but an explicit one not sure exactly what he wants them to do. Already, the party is in the throes of Stockholm Syndrome. They have uh, elevated the events of January 6th to something that's either righteous and noble or just one day in January, according to Mike Pence. Ashley Babbitt is a martyr. Uh, You know, Trump's the de facto leader of the party to anybody who will talk on record about it, yada, yada, yada. What more do they want him to do? It's not clear. But in my view, this is a big mistake for two reasons. The first... On on whose part? On his part? On on Trump's part. For two reasons. The first is that it is implicitly takes credit for the Georgia losses. 
which both Trump and all his allies spent months rigorously trying to say that was not the case. I it just, you know, it's another example of you mortgaging your credibility if you defend this guy in any shape, way or form. But they spent weeks insisting that the GOP only overperforms when Trump is on the ballot and David Perdue and Kelly Loeffler were bad candidates and Mitch McConnell should have written $2,000 into this COVID relief bill and every other reason for this loss but Donald Trump. Now, Donald Trump comes out and says, I did it. So first, he's taking credit for the GOP's electoral morass and all the legislative failures that have uh, been associated with that. And the second problem is that unless he gets more explicit with this, picks some bellwether races, something along these lines, he's setting himself up for failure because Republicans will gain seats in 2022. Now, Donald Trump can come out and say, oh, but they would have gained more, right? But that's an unfalsifiable proposition. The demonstrable proposition will be Republicans gaining seats, not as a result of whatever Donald Trump says, but as a result of the governing party and the president in office. And they may even become the majority party, at least in one chamber, and maybe both. And if that happens, it will. everybody who wants to make a narrative out of it will be able to say they did so despite Donald Trump's exhortations, rendering him a paper tiger. Um, now, that might not materialize, but it seems like the most likely uh, outcome. And if Republicans want to take advantage of that opportunity to maybe extricate themselves from the corner into which they painted themselves, there's an opportunity there right for you. Well, can he just say the elections were fixed to hurt me? <laughs> I mean, I mean, I mean, I mean I'm, hurt you by how Republicans will gain seats? Yeah, but 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 if his objective is otherwise, then that then that I mean, obviously, the it's Republican a, it's, Party it's a, the will fix have is always political in. power. Yeah. Now, the yeah. argument for Donald Trump is that he wins, and only Trump Donald Trump can win. And if he if the Republicans win, and Republican voters benefit from that victory, Donald Trump is now positioning himself as opposed, we all know this to be the case, but Donald Trump is positioning himself to be opposed to Republican victories and their legislative and governing elements that are associated with Republican victories that Republican voters supposedly launch, want. And Donald Trump is on the other end of that? I, he's opposed but, to all that? Well, he's I mean, also... It's a, it's a psychological... Uh, to, to navigate that argument requires a lot of deft psychological maneuvering on your part. Well, I'm glad you said psychological because there's another aspect of this psychologically that it, that he's kind of telling his own voters. He's assuming a lot about his control over them. And the whole appeal of him back in 2015, it was he was speaking for them. Now he's telling them what to do. And he's been doing that since he since he lost the reelection. But it's a it, this message in particular, if you think about what's galvanizing a lot of conservatives right now, in certainly in, you know, gubernatorial races in places like Virginia and, and across the country, they're, they're riled up in a kind of a, and, and they're not happy with how the Biden administration is running the country. And, and we see this in polls for him to come out right now. And instead of, you know, kind of harnessing that energy and directing it saying, I'm going to hold you all hostage. You can't go to the polls because of my, you know, continued grievances about the last election. I'm not sure the people who love him so much are going to follow that to a T if they're wound up about lots of other things. It's it, it, it's assuming a lot about about his power over his own supposed voters. So I think that makes Noah's point that Trump has made a tactical error here that he is misunderstanding the nature of a political action on the part of ordinary people um, that they respond to immediate circumstances that they respond and participate in politics. Most of them, because it is the way that they express how they feel about what is going on at the present and whether or not the direction should be 
you know, the, the, the direction of things should remain as it is or whether, whether things should veer radically in a, in a different way. And he wants to adjudicate an event in the past, which might be important. And in fact, Democrats also seem transfixed by the idea that 2024 is somehow going to be an election in which January 6th is going to play a major role. And January 6th will have been three, three and a half years in the rearview mirror by that point. Not that it's not a, a vital matter to adjudicate and discuss, but there are going to be 10 billion other things that happen that have already happened and will continue to happen that will mean that the events of 2021 will be historical and not not alive uh, in the same way. Yeah, I think, you know, Christine's point, it, it, it only just with it now, it just dawns on me that uh, I think for the first time, it's it's you can tell that the populist rights um, main cause is actually no longer Trump. It, it sort of happened uh, without my realizing it. You know, it's 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 a, a collection of other issues, uh, many of which they're they've they've, you know, I think uh, blundered on and, and are, are taking too far and, you know, um, making all sorts of mistakes. But yeah, it, it's it's much more about um, mandates and and uh, and the Biden administration and uh, the squad and and the you know uh, uh, the sort of the, the direction of the Democrats. Uh, yeah, actual politics. Yeah, yeah, but it's Donald, actually. I, 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 I didn't think it was going to happen. His well, demand look. here is is deliberately vague because he can't really say what he wants. What he wants is revenge. He wants vengeance against the party that would not break the country to salve his wounded ego. He's not going to get that. Right. Well, look. But what he's what he's demanding here is something that's unrealizable, and the demand is so is so you know vague and and high that it's going to be unmet, which gives everybody the opportunity that they can really exploit here if they really wanted to. I just want to add one thing, even to the extent that there is that that there there there's still some focus among uh, certain people on the right. On January sixth, the the martyrology is not about Trump now. It's it's about the the actual uh, people who were there. I mean, I think that that's an important point too. When you create a different uh, class of victims, when Ashley Babbitt starts taking center stage, somebody who was trespassing on the Capitol and threatening the Capitol uh, police officer who told her to stop, and then he shot her or all of these people who were arrested and uh, about whom this, I'm sure, clearly fictitious nonsense line has been that they're like the Count of Monte Cristo or the man in the Iron Mask, you know, having been sent to Devil's Island, you know, to eat uh, cockroaches uh, in, you know, in cells half covered in brackish water like that. That's so you create a narrative like that. Yeah. And Trump seems like, you know, he's look, he's at his at his golf course. He's, you know, he's at his hotel, whatever it is. And, you know, he's not suffering. Um and they are, and so that 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 creates an entirely different dynamic. Look, in 2024, if he runs and he becomes the nominee of the party, and there is a contest between him and Biden or a Biden successor, his clear message is going to be: Are you happy about what happened after I stopped being president? Don't you want me to be president again so that we can be back where we were in 2019 before the virus? Um. But, you know, that in some ways requires saying, okay, I stopped being president. These guys took over. 
look what a mess they made. I'm going to come back in and clean up the mess. Um, not I'm going to spend an hour every day yammering at you about how things were unfair to me in November and December of 2020. And to Abe's point, you know, to the extent that there are populist voters, populist Republican voters who actually want to get things done or more more accurately want to stop things from happening. Um, after the 2022 elections, in the event that Republicans do well enough to capture control of one or both chambers of Congress, the Republican majority is going to be incredibly important to these people. They will be incredibly efficacious in stopping what Joe Biden wants to do. And because it's a two-party system, it's the only vehicle in town to do what you want to do. It's the, it's the, the only instrument in the tool shed that can achieve your objectives. And Donald Trump's ego becomes decidedly second rate as a matter of priorities. Well, I mean, but, the, the question is, how will he function in a world in which Republicans have power, but it's not his power? Uh, you know, if Kevin McCarthy is Speaker of the House, if McConnell becomes Senate Majority Leader again, if they are the bulwark against, you know, the advanced liberals, you know, liberal advances or, you know, the, the front line against liberal advances, he is going to be sitting there kibitzing from the sidelines. And at some point that may start to seem like he is interfering with the good working order of the opposition to Biden and the Democrats. Not that he is helping but that he is hurting because he'll be doing the, he'll be, you know, Alex from Fatal Attraction boiling the bunny in the Republican, you know, in the nice Republican house in Westchester saying, you know, I won't be ignored. But, I won't be ignored, Republicans. <laughs> and they'll have a, other things to do. Well, this, we have an interesting test case, and I'm obsessed with this race because it's right across the river in Virginia. The, the governor's race in Virginia is testing in real time some of these uh, theories we're floating because Terry McAuliffe, the Democrat, is running against Trump. Like he's very, his message is very much, I'm fighting against Trump and everything he stands for and everything his voters want. Like I'm the, I'm the bulwark against that. But Youngkin, who's now, who's basically closed the gap in this race uh, and making it much more of a, of a close race than a lot of Democrats assumed it would be, is running on the culture war stuff and is running on the Biden administration mandates and is really taking, is not, I mean, he does occasionally mention Trump, but he is distancing himself from those arguments. So if he wins, that's also sending a message to Democrats about if you're going to run against Donald Trump, that's not really a winning set of issues for you anymore because People are concerned about all this other stuff that this administration is doing. Look, I mean, it's very important. And in some sense, it doesn't, in the end, ultimately matter if Youngkin wins or loses. I, I, I say that in a weird way because, of course, you think, well, if he wins by 1% or, or if he loses by 1%, then, you know, who, who is governor of Virginia? That is, that, is, that is decisive. But the simple fact of the matter is that Virginia has gone essentially blue uh, Northam won by, I think, nine points in 2017. Uh, Biden won comfortably. Obama won comfortably. Um, if there is a big reversal, and if these numbers are real, these polling numbers are real that show this is a jump ball, and, and Youngkin comes really close but doesn't win, or wins but wins by a small margin, either way, you're going to see evidence of a retreat to safety on the part of voters who are looking at the behavior of the Democrats in Washington and the behavior of the Repu of the Democrats in Virginia in responding to things like critical race theory, 
and COVID and various other things and saying, I don't like the way this is looking. I've been like, you know, I've been basically voting this way now since 2012. And I I think maybe um, we should pull the reins up a little bit and it will be a very interesting result. Like, I think the notion that what matters here is that Yunkin wins, I'm not even sure is true, is what I'm trying to say. Like, if it's an incredibly close race and it comes down to we don't know who the winner is by 2 o'clock in the morning, um, it will have the same net, it should have the same net effect on as a bellwether or an understanding. The same thing could be true in, in New Jersey, by the way. Um, Noah, you pointed out that uh, Phil Murphy, the governor of, of New Jersey, who is, you know, I, I mean, I don't even think there's a poll that shows the Republican candidate within, you know, I don't know, within a mile of him. But the commercials that Murphy is running all over New York media are very negative and they are very harsh. And generally speaking, when somebody is running for re-election in this way and has a gimme race, they want to run lots of biographical feel-good stuff that will make people feel good about the re-election vote and will give them sort of like a whole sense that they have a mandate for a second term. He seems intent or his campaign seems intent on the idea that they've got to quash this guy, whose name, by the way, I don't even remember right now. Citarelli. Citarelli. Yeah, he's, he's sort of a, he's a, he's a backbencher politician here, although he did manage to win his primary by not being the Trumpiest guy in the race, despite his, the fact that he appeared at the January 6th rally. I mean, they've been trying to leverage him and leverage right. that against him. And I don't know quite what to make of Phil Murphy's strategy, save for the fact that maybe Democrats are really spooked. They remember 2009. If Phil Murphy wins re-election, he'll be the first Democratic governor to be re-elected in the state since Brendan Byrne. That Democrats would be in the 1980s, really, right? Democrats do not have a really good track record. Governors do not have a good track record of winning re-election in this state. So maybe they're spooked. Um, and, or maybe they just have a ton of cash and they're just throwing it everywhere they can. But yeah, I've seen some of these ads and they are strikingly negative. The one that I, I remarked to you guys, I was I was moved to talk about it because it was so remarkable, is um, they leveraged Citarelli saying accurately that COVID is not a serious threat to young children. Bad outcomes are rare to the point of negligibility when it comes to children, minors, young minors who get COVID. And then the, the commercial was how irresponsible, how reckless. No, how, no, what, what an, it what does, what it does health. is he says it, and then they have some clip of Trump saying something like, at least kids don't get sick from COVID or something like right, that. And yeah. it's like, you see, he's Trump. You see, he's Trump. See, he's Trump. But also this accurate assessment based on all relevant data is is terribly negligent because it's a pandemic, don't you know? I mean, that speaks to this sort of pathology that has overtaken the left when it comes to the pandemic um, and their detachment from reality in the face of, you know, public health, extreme, extreme public health measures. But also, you know, maybe they're a little spooked. Who knows? I, I Look, I think they're spooked. Now, as I say, could could, as you say, it could be superstition. And what you refer to is the fact that, Chris Christie came out of nowhere in 2009 and beat John Corzine, um, who had 10 times the amount of money that Chris Christie had or some astonishing Corzine himself was hugely rich and all that. And he'd like, he was a sort of, there should have been sympathy for him. He got in a car accident. Like there's a whole thing where 
it, it was a huge su- surprise that uh, that he won. And it was a huge su- surprise in 2009 uh, that um, McDonald won in Virginia, the Republican candidate in Virginia. And that was the harbinger of the of the the shellacking of, of, of 2010 and the coming of Scott Brown in Massachusetts and all of that, that whatever had happened, that the Obama people had gone so far that in these effectively, well, I mean, so New Jersey is pretty much a blue state. Virginia was then really a purple state. People were going, whoa, 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 hold on there, Tex. And so, yeah, I mean, I think, I think the superstition is real, but, I mean, I don't think political campaigns go negative uh, for no reason. Like, they're they're seeing some vulnerability that they are attempting to, you know, nip in the bud or quash or sort of at least redirect the energy of. And and that message, kids don't, you know, kids are not at risk from COVID. Oh, you know, there's ominous music and it's dark and all of that. That is clearly aimed at exactly the people we're talking about here, which is sort of suburban moms, right? Suburban women who seem who Based seem very democratic health voters. Well, they're yeah, or or suburban women who who turned out to become base democratic voters in 2018 when their votes were much more white suburban white suburban women were much more inclined to split, you know, to were, were, were more Republican voters, you know, before 2018 when they just deserted the Republican party on mass. Um, anyway, it's just, it's, these are interesting uh, phenomena. It's hard to, it's hard to reckon with it until we see the results. Like, you know, there's, we always want to, you know, sort of like analyze, <laughs> analyze these things. Before anything happens, like we did have that weird month of, you know, hey, maybe this recall of Gavin Newsom is going to win. And, you know, he 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 prevailed by 25 points or something. So um, but the Yunkin race is clearly real. Like that is a real thing that is happening. And Democrats are terrified. And Terry McAuliffe, who is said to be a very good retail politician. I mean, Democrats who watch this stuff say that he's a very good retail politician is not showing very good retail politician skills. He was confronted by a guy uh, in front of a school or something like that who asked him, I'm not quite sure what question he asked him about lockdowns or masking or, or, or the Loudoun County. If, 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 Parents. If kids' parents shouldn't, uh, you know, uh, be involved in in their education, oh, right, who should right. be? Because, right. because during can... a debate, he had said, you know, parents shouldn't be deciding what kids learn in schools. It was a, it was one of those lines that when he as soon as he said it, every conservative who heard it said he's going to regret saying that. Yeah. <laughs> and he, and he anyway, shouldn't. so this guy says it to him, and you know, it's a by the way, you know, it's a gimme opportunity for him to address precisely the thing that you're talking about and kind of either walk it back or reframe it in a way that could drain some of the energy out of this. What do you mean parents don't have a role in the education of their, of their children? Are you insane? What do you think school boards are? And that sort of thing. He turned to the person and said, why aren't you wearing a mask? Are you vaccinated? Why I want, what I want to know is why aren't you, why are you vaccinated? Why aren't you wearing a mask? He was outside. When he he was outside. Yeah, it was just McCall all wrong. was wearing a mask, and he's vaccinated, which means he doesn't need to be wearing a mask outside. And if this is the way that he, this great retail politician, deals with a slightly, what shouldn't have been a particularly unexpected 
moment with a constituent, with a potential constituent, I don't know. And it, I have to say that it's the end of the video that's going to strike a lot of people because he's he's he talks to this guy in this sort of contemptuous way. And then he's hustled by all of his people into a waiting SUV with tinted windows and drives off. And there's there, the contempt that that was visible both in his posture and in the tone of his voice. And in that exit is exactly what Youngkin is capitalizing on in his campaign, saying the, this is how these people think of you, parents, parents who are now having to pay a lot more for everything, who are trying to get their school boards to listen to them. They don't care what you think. And there his behavior suggests though. that's true. There is something back to the Trump conversation. There is something to the lack of the Republican Party's, the, you know, the Republican Party's leadership deficit. So, you know, um, Barack Obama's descending on uh, Virginia and Joe Biden's descending on Virginia. And, and Barack Obama is actually coming to New Jersey, too. He's going to rally with um, Murphy in Newark on the first day of, uh, of absentee voting here. Um, and that's going to be very effective. And the Republican Party has no answer to that. They don't have a GOTV driving apparatus that can be led by a big personality and get voters to the polls. It just doesn't exist. And Donald Trump clearly doesn't want to play that role. So, you know, they are they are behind the eight ball when it comes to the, you know, the amount of the guns they can bring to the field, as it were. Although McAuliffe indicated that he believes that Biden is a drag on his campaign. So it's an interesting double edged sword to have Biden come campaign for him if he needs to have some distance from from Biden by his own by his own admission. Um, not Obama, obviously, and not Michelle Obama and not any uh, all sorts of other people. Um, if that is how votes are gotten out anymore. I, I mean, I'm I'm always skeptical of, of that notion that um, that it matters that somebody comes to the state to help you. I mean, sometimes if it's really unexpected and you're really not well known and you can get a real shot in the arm like Obama got from Oprah in North Carolina, North Carolina or South Carolina in 2007. Like that's a real thing. But Terry McAuliffe has already been governor of Virginia. He's one of the, you know, he was the head of the DNC. He's a close friend of Clinton's. Like he's been a figure in politics in Virginia and the Washington area for 30 years. Like, I don't know how a visit from Obama is going to help well, a visit raise from his Obama. profile. A visit from I mean, New Jersey I and mean, a visit from Obama Oh, no, I'm not talking, in, I'm talking about New Jersey. Well, I'm, I'm saying about, in Newark. Yeah, I mean, it tells you where obviously. they want to drive up the vote, <clears throat> which is among African-Americans, um, which tells you a little bit about where they see a lag, a lag of interest and passion. You know, we've been talking about the lack of passion and the part of the electorate for the last couple of weeks. We haven't, but that's been something that's been bubbling up in the media that polling suggests the intensity of interest in, in the upcoming vote is really seriously down. And that's somehow a problem. Republicans are like, that's not a problem. That's actually really great. Um, but uh, it right. tells you where they, where they, you know, he's not going to, um, you know, he's not going to Morristown. Right. No, but you're talking suburb. about, you're talking about New Jersey. I was talking about Virginia, yeah. obviously Obama. One of the weird things about Phil Murphy, governor of New Jersey is that like, there are probably, 40% of people in New Jersey don't know that their governor is a guy named Phil Murphy. He is he is an astoundingly he is an astoundingly low profile uh governor of a major American state. Um it's astonishing how how low a profile he has and you know maybe that's to his benefit because the person who like, you know, swallowed all the oxygen in the room was Andrew Cuomo, <clears throat> you know, and so <clears throat> Murphy uh, avoided becoming kind of like one of the faces of the 
of of crazy lockdown in part because he had this you know 800 pound gorilla across the hudson uh you know who became the you know who became sort of like the target of opportunity for everybody who was upset about it and he kind of did his own crazy stuff not all that much no, he has a worse record has a worse record that's true phil murphy and yeah. in, in terms of the body count at uh, senior facilities new jersey outranks um new york what an honor what an honor <laughs> for the garden state um uh so let me uh talk to you about bambi um uh our first sponsor um and talk to you about hr uh if you run a small business, I run a small business, HR issues can kill you. And HR manager salaries aren't cheap, an average of $70,000 a year. So Bambi, spelled B-A-M-B-E-E, was created specifically for small business. It gives you a dedicated HR manager who can help craft HR policy and maintain your compliance all for just $99 a month. With Bambi, you can change HR from your biggest liability to your biggest strength. Your dedicated HR manager is available by phone, email, or real-time chat. From onboarding to terminations, they customize your policies to fit your business and help you manage your employees day-to-day all for just $99 a month, month to month, no hidden fees, cancel anytime you didn't start your business because you wanted to spend time on HR compliance. Excuse me. <clears throat> Let Bambi help get your free HR audit today. Go to Bambi.com slash commentary right now to schedule your free HR audit. That's Bambi.com slash commentary, spelled BAM to the B-E-E dot com slash commentary so um you know if you're joe biden like you you would just have not had any good news in months i mean it, you know we're, we're we're getting into jimmy carter 1979 territory in terms of how there's kind of unrelievedly bad news i mean he's got a ways to go before that that set of uh catastrophes really uh, even despite the c- catastrophe of afghanistan but i mean the news over the last couple of days inflation running at five and a half percent um uh supply the supply chain crisis being so um severe that people are starting to prepare for the fact that their christmas presents may not arrive um biden giving a really kind of semi-deranged speech yesterday or like a speech that does it would appear no no like um clear-headed person on the white house staff really considered the sound of when he said things like, it'll be really great. We're, we're ordering that the Los, the Los Angeles port be kept open 24 hours a day because, you know, at night, trucks, there's less traffic. So trucks will drive at night and there'll be less traffic and they'll get places. I mean, we are talking about fundamental supply chain questions involving an economy that is $23 trillion in size. Well, that trucks you want to talk will be about... able to get someplace an hour and a half faster than they might otherwise is not an answer to this problem. Not as you say, Noah, as you say very fairly, that there is all that much that he can do about some of these problems, which are worldwide and organic and have to do with manufacturing problems everywhere. Yeah, but some of this stuff is directly attributable to their their policies, particularly their energy policies. You want to talk about Jimmy Carter territory. The the uh, <clears throat> federal agencies responsible for this sort of thing said yesterday that they expect households will see their heating bills jump this winter by 54%. Wear a sweater. 
You want to uh, talk about Jimmy Carter time. We all have to pull together here, guys. Put on a sweater. Put solar panels on your rooftop. I mean, it's absolutely 1979 style, and it is directly attributable to this to this White House's green environmental policies, which have put a cap on energy production, have limited energy production, have increased prices across the board, and that is not something that I'm willing to absolve this White House of. Well, and if he wants to talk to specifics, he shouldn't be talking about how he's going to get truck drivers to drive through the night with stuff from the L.A. port. He should speak directly to the to Americans who are experiencing things, the kinds of things that they feel in their pocketbook, groceries, gas, as, as Noah says, energy. But you know what spiked considerably? Children's shoes because of these supply chain issues. If you're a parent of young children, you're replacing those kids' shoes all the time. Their feet grow constantly. I, I Luckily, mine are now at you know, kind of adult size and I don't have to do this all the time. But those expenses add up. When your grocery bill every week is higher and you're getting less for your money, when your gas tank it costs twice as much to fill up and you're looking to the money you've saved to buy gifts at the holidays for your family, and not only can they not guarantee it's going to be there, but your money's going much less far than it used to. And your wage increase, whatever you might've gotten is not keeping up with inflation. We are. You know, too, did, oh, go ahead. Hey, did, did you notice also when he spoke, he used the opportunity to say that um, this is why it's partially why it's so urgent that infrastructure passes because, 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 because that too would really, you know, go some distance in alleviating the, the, the crisis. By the way, I mean, uh, not to get too in the weeds, uh, but in fact, um, a, a large-scale increase in government spending will only create a crisis in the supply chain. It will not resolve it if there is more competition in the marketplace from, you know, like freewheeling government spending involving, you know, printing money at the Fed and all of that. Then government will be competing with private sector, you know, for like cement and uh that that's just the hard infrastructure stuff let let alone any anything else like i'm not sure that you know in a this is the sort of thing that that can have all kinds of weird unintended consequences uh at a moment when the problem is that uh there is too much money chasing too few goods and that is what inflation is and we have to remember it's been two generations since inflation was an issue, like I and I, I, as I've said before, like I, I am really the only one of the four of us who remembers inflation, like remembers the life under inflation. And the thing about inflation is it is a regressive tax because it is. It hits the poor and the rich alike, and it has it, it does not know any does not know any distinction if your heating bill goes up 50% and you're rich, your heating bill goes up 50% and you, you know, you can, you can, you can handle it. If you're living paycheck by paycheck and your heating bill goes up 50%, that is no joke. And that is where the political instability caused by inflation comes in. And I really do think that, you know, we haven't seen it, if the November elections, you know, have surprising results, anti-democratic results, that may be the first real evidence of the political deformation that is going to be caused by the economic consequences of all of this. And woe betide anybody running for office. I mean, that, by the way, includes republican incumbents it, you know you can't just blame everything on the democrats it's at the state and local level and stuff like that people are going to say 
my life is getting appreciably worse. Even at a time, by the way, that they can get now, I mean, it's an advantage that there's a labor shortage and that people are competing for workers because wages are going to go up. And so, therefore, people will be able to handle inflation more readily than they were in the 1970s when inflation was going up and em- unemployment was going up at the same time. And so, you know, people were and, – and tax policy was such that if you got a raise, uh, you often ended up paying – getting taking home less and paying more in taxes because you jumped into a new tax bracket and the brackets weren't indexed. I mean, there was all kinds of horrors that we're not going to see again in the same way. But people, you know, it's the most painful kind of economic dislocation. And it is the hardest to correct for as a matter of policy. Um, some of it will correct itself over time. But some of it won't, and that's what—that's when we saw the, you know, unbelievably horrible, you know, recession of 1981-1982, which basically killed and killed inflation by causing massive economic pain in, in the short run for incredible benefits to two generations of benefits in the long term. On this point of um, uh, Biden uh, having a problem, not necessarily of his own making here. Every president, I mean, forget that, every politician gets saddled with crises that are not entirely of their own making uh, and with crises that there's there's not, in fact, much you can do about in terms of policy. But what you can do, uh, if you're good at it, is to project a sense that people are in the best hands. And I, I, I mean, take, it's a weird example because people weren't in the best hands, but nevertheless, during uh, COVID, Andrew Cuomo managed to project that notion to a, 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 a good majority of New Yorkers. The fact that it wasn't true is is almost beside the point. No, it's um, exactly the point. Actually, you're making the point, right, which right, is which right. is that which is that some of this is simply a matter of how you present yourself and the facts, and and. Cuomo hits hit something, hit a sweet spot right. with the people he needed, and Biden clearly isn't doing that. And and I, you know, look, and I may and I, you know, may be uh, be proven, you know, embarrassingly wrong on this point, but I don't think he can ever do it again. I, I think I don't think he anymore has the ability to project that. This the the idea that you are in good hands with this administration. Well, I don't know that he's ever actually successfully. I mean, the administration's been in power now for it's right. like, like ten months. Um, I mean, at at what point did people go? I mean, I think people felt a lot of people felt a good deal of relief that the that the Trump chaos was over, and that you know there was something else going on in the White House that wasn't that wasn't this kind of elementary chaos but i i don't see well on yeah on, on vaccines actually this is exactly what they did when, when when the administration first got in office they did manage to convey this idea that they were doing things um in a new and different and special way that was that that the, so the country was now in good hands for the during the crisis once again like the like the cuomo situation right. It wasn't really true. There was nothing really any different going on. It was the, it was the inevitable ramp up that would have happened no matter who was in office. Um, so they had a moment 
at least where people were like, oh, thank God, someone someone responsible is taking charge of this. Um, now let me uh, talk to you about it's fall, right? Beautiful time. I saw the leaves turning on the Merritt Parkway just the other day. Um, so when is the perfect time to plant trees and shrubs? Big box store experts will tell you any time or but the best time to plant is actually fall, which means now is the time not to go to a big box store, but to go to fastgrowingtrees.com. No more waiting in lines, messy cars, digging through a lackluster selection. Just go to fastgrowingtrees.com and choose from thousands of varieties of trees, shrubs, and plants expertly curated to thrive in your area and delivered to your door in one or two days. Whether you're looking for shade, privacy, fruit trees, or just added color for your yard. Every plant is shipped with a well-developed root system ready to explode with new growth come spring. There's a better way to buy trees and shrubs and plants for your home or yard. It's fastgrowingtrees.com. Plus, the 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee means your plants will arrive healthy, healthy, and ready for planting. Join over 1 million satisfied gardeners at fastgrowingtrees.com. Now through November 30th, Go to fastgrowingtrees.com slash commentary for 15% off. That's 15% off at fastgrowingtrees.com slash commentary. Fastgrowingtrees.com slash commentary. Um, one thing I wanted to bring up, we could have sort of discussed as an offshoot of the Trump discussion we had earlier, but is this um, controversy uh, Jonah Goldberg stepped into my dear friend Jonah Goldberg, uh, co-podcast host on Glop and various other things, where he said he's had enough. The Republican Party is in terrible shape. There should be a third party that punishes Republicans, uh, Republican politicians, gives people another place to go because because the Republican Party is betraying conservatism and conservatives need a place to vote conservative. And so there's been all sorts of criticisms. Uh, our friends at National Review, Charlie Cook, Michael Brennan Doherty, Dan McLaughlin have all weighed in on why Jonah's wrong and all that. And I don't really want to talk about the Jonah thing. I'm more interested in <clears throat> this sort of general question of the political system seems increasingly unresponsive to current conditions, right? We're in this bizarre moment in which we have um, progressive politicians pushing policies that, as David Shore keeps pointing out, really don't seem to reflect the interests of most Democratic voters, and yet they have the upper hand. Republicans are talking about a lot of things. They're talking about things that people care about, but they're also a lot of them are talking about Trump in 2020 and all of that and not not really the, the present moment. And um, is there something special about this moment? Is there, are we at a moment at which the political system is uniquely unresponsive to the needs, interests, and desires of the public? Uh, or, or does it just feel that way because we live in this hothouse where everybody is talking 24 hours a day about everything that if this were 40 years, if we were in 1979 and all of that, I mean, I can't even imagine what Twitter 1979 would have been like as as everything sort of came together at once in a kind of itemized, endless list of horrors. But why is it unresponsive? Isn't this, isn't this what people want? I, I mean, I, I think Americans want 
the the sort of never ending uh, all consuming culture wars to some extent, and that and that's and that's what the system is delivering. Well, the most politically engaged do. <clears throat> I mean, in the seventies, people took to the streets to protest inflation. I mean, it wasn't wasn't uncommon. Um, you, I can't even imagine something like that happening today. What drives you out into the streets now, if you're inclined to go into the streets at all, are cultural issues, uh, socio-political issues that are really not the province of government and can't be resolved by government. Um, so yeah, insofar as government is unresponsive to the demands of the, the electorate, it is only because the demands of the electorate are unrealizable. Well, well, and that and we do also like to fight. I mean, I'm with I'm with Abe. If you if you know if you have any friends who live overseas who follow online debates in America or or when an a, an American political even remotely political issue is introduced into any sort of discussion that includes non-Americans, they're all like, "Oh, for crying out loud! Like, just stop arguing about your you know uh, petty political issues." I mean, there is a sense in which we actually really enjoy the the rough and tumble of political debate, and we have in recent decades politicize just about everything. And obviously social media encourages that and whatnot. But I do think there's some pleasure people take in constantly arguing about this stuff, even if, as Noah says, they're not doing and taking any real action and in some cases not even voting on these issues when they have an opportunity to. Well, then there's this ancillary question of the national divorce. Like uh, people have been talking about, is it time for a national divorce? Whatever that means. About a Twitter topic. Well, but I mean, there have been columns and, you know, did Ross Douthat's written about it. Ben Dominich has written about it. You know, all these people have written about it, mostly to say, no, there shouldn't be. Not that anybody can understand what on earth you mean by a national divorce. But, you know, the funny part about the United States is we are divorced or we're not married. Like this is a this is a system in, a that privileges union. the individual over the collective. And so as a result, you can live where you want, you can, you can, you, you know, you, you all, you know, you have private associations that you can change at a moment's notice. You can live among the people who think exactly the way you do or, 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 or pray exactly the way you do, or, you know, do whatever you can, or, or you can't, or you can be, you know, Abe and me and live in the middle of Manhattan where people who vote like us, you know, make up 9% of the population, um, or, you know, or not. I mean, we we don't have a system in which we are married. I, I'm, I'm sorry. Like, the whole point about the United States is that it gives you, a, a, and, and, and it's a problem, by the way. It's a problem for all, at all kinds of moments of crisis or whatever. But, but we're not married to each other. And, and so the national divorce is just people saying, I don't like that there are all these people around me who think things that I don't like. I don't like that. So I would like to imagine that I'm a world, I can live in a world in which they don't matter to my daily life anymore. But to be consumed with that is to be, is to steep yourself in political media and ideological combat on social media. And the people who do that are so insular and so so committing themselves to a narrow band of the general population to think that this is something akin this year something akin to 1860 is to know nothing about 1860 is to really have absolutely no connection to the events that precipitated the last civil war and to even to to talk, to talk about that as though it's a real thing and not just something that really aggravated people on twitter worked themselves up into a froth over 
is is to reflect a, expose a kind of insularity that I think is discrediting. It's not a real issue, and to address it like it's a real issue is silly. But I, I agree, it's not a real issue, and in fact, I, I don't I don't believe them because I think the truth is, the people who say I just don't want these people in my lives in my life anymore, um, desperately want these people in their lives. Um, they're obsessed with them. Their 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 whole purpose is um, to pick apart the agenda of the people they supposedly want to uh, want this divorce from. Right, uh, and your your identity is defined as as a unionist, yes. as it were. You know, yeah. Well, I mean, look, that's a that's an interesting sort of psychological point. I mean, I, I just think that there is a uh, there is a very weird effect uh, that, on the one hand, social media should provide people with a sense of the size and scope and difference of the United States, just almost by 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 association. Like I understand that Facebook decided to silo people's you know, information to the people they know. And so therefore everybody lives in a bubble and all of that, but other forms of social media bring things in. And a lot of people don't like that. They particularly don't like, if you're say a social conservative, you don't like the exposure of, you know, of your children and teenagers to, you know, radically liberal ideas about lifestyle and gender and all of that. And you feel that they're being exposed too soon to unnecessary without, without critical content or without, you know, anything mediating between them and the prop of what you see as propaganda. Nonetheless, there is a sense of the scope and largeness of the United States and, and, and its diversity, let's say. And um, people claim and people don't like it. And what's really interesting is that the people who say that they like diversity the most don't like it the least. Like they're all, we should all be diverse. And I don't want, I, if you say that you believe that a person b- born biologically a female is a female and not a birthing person or whatever the term is that you want to use, I would like you to be run out of society and sent to a small island. Uh, well, and banned from the platform on which they post an article that says that, which has happened just just this past week. Someone was banned from Twitter for posting a thing that says here he, uh, talking about biological differences in there and how that plays out in the arena of sports competition. Right. I, I'm just I just think it's it's really interesting that the people who claim that they need a national divorce are people who find intolerable, who claim to be supporters of diversity on on the left and free speech on the right and cannot bear diversity or free speech um, because it appalls them so much to see people doing acting and saying in ways that they don't approve of I mean, maybe maybe I come at this uh, as a as, as a Jew I mentioned this earlier this week you know like my people make up two percent of the population of the country. Uh, you may call me white. You may say that I'm a white person, and therefore I'm uh, all all in all privilege. But you know, um, I can see down the road all sorts of things happening in Europe and elsewhere in, involving the practice of my faith, including laws outlawing outlawing circumcision. Um, Gary Steingart, the the American Russian Jewish novelist has a piece of propaganda about how, you know, circumcision is evil based on some personal experience. I don't really understand. And 
you know, and 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 <clears throat> the ritual slaughter of animals uh, leading to kashrut is something that has been banned in some countries in Europe and, and, and all of that. And so I can see that coming down the pike. And so I do believe that it's very important that a diversity of opinion and practice be respected in a country like this, because it's so easy for people like that to simply make a move on, on the most fundamental rights that we have, which is why they're enshrined in the first amendment. Why, why are all these assaults coming on? That's the genius of the system, the genius of the Constitution, you can see it right now because all anybody wants to do right now is limit the speech of others and limit the, limit the freedom of assembly of others and limit the religious practice of others. Like this is, this is where people go when they feel untrammeled and it's, it's, it's frightening. And, you know, fortunately our system, you know, our, our, the genius of our system protects us from these impulses. That's where, but that's where Jono was right. I share the, the, the assumption on the part of his critics that the vehicle he's seeking to execute his vision here is going to backfire and not have its intended effect. I agree with those critics, but he's also right when he wrote in his, his uh, email newsletter last night that conservatism as a philosophy, as the preserver of a classical liberal ideal um, is under assault. And if it does fail within the Republican coalition, then you're just talking about a, a war of competing cultural uh, proclivities and not anything resembling a kind of uh, a, a, some, a, something that would preserve the social compact that would preserve liberty and preserve religious freedom and preserve the kind of uh, the ex the American experiment, uh, the ideals that are enshrined in the Bill of Rights, et cetera, so forth, that conservatism, properly understood, is the only avenue for protecting and preserving that. It's under assault within the Republican coalition. It's anathema in the left. So if that if that's over, then the experiment's over. Look, uh, a lot of political ferment and change happened in the 1960s, and the neoconservatives came along in part uh, both domestically and in terms of foreign policy, often now thought of as like crazy idealists who want to bring democracy to the whole world. But when the public interest started in 1965, when commentary started to turn to the right in the late 60s and early 70s, a lot of the impulse, even though this was very highly scholarly, very high-end uh, argumentation uh, with a lot of um, you know philosophical, practical, political and sociological knowledge behind it, but mo most of it was, what are you, crazy? What's wrong with you people? Are you insane? You're saying North Vietnam is better than the United States. What are you, demented? You think it's okay to dance around a coffin with a Star of David on it because you're mad because, because you wanted to impose, uh, you know, black power schooling in Ocean Hill-Brownsville? Are you nuts? What's the matter with you people? Get snap out of it, and and a lot of the snap out of it. This is all going crazy. Explains the rise of forces arrayed against both the old right and the and the new left uh, that ended up, you know, sort of bringing Ronald Reagan to power and changing the nature of the American relation to government. What are you crazy? You can't tax people at seventy percent of their income. That doesn't work well. You can't, you know, I mentioned the other day, Mac Glazer saying, you know, cities used to, went from being places that that did things that they knew how to do, like clean up the garbage, to trying to do things that nobody knew how to do, like cure poverty. And it was like, don't try to cure poverty. It's not going to work. 
you're a go back to picking out the picking up the garbage you know put a new window in when the window is broken put a new window in when the window is broken and the other windows won't get broken like a lot of that is just common sense and we have both the right and the left departing so radically from common sense that it's hard not to imagine that some set of countervailing forces will not arise in both parties to straighten things out. Now, maybe we've gone too far and maybe the experiment is over. But I mean, a lot of this is just, what do you mean women aren't women and men aren't men? Go, 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 you know, go jump off a cliff, you lunatic. Men don't have uteruses. They can't have babies. They're not, they're not, they're, they're birthing people are women. Like, you know, it's like, what am I, what am I taking crazy pills? You know, I mean, that's, there is a what am I taking crazy pills aspect of everything that has been going on, both on the right and the left, that it, that you just can't imagine people of good common sense aren't going to respond to if there are political figures and cultural figures who can harness that. The silence is deafening. So I will take this as an occasion to wish you a very good day. And we will convene again tomorrow for Abe, Christina, No. I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle.